Hello, and welcome to Making Christ Known, a podcast from Adairsville Baptist Church in Adairsville, Georgia. This podcast features senior pastor Eric Sorrell and his sermons designed to make Christ known in Adairsville and beyond. For more information about Adairsville Baptist Church, visit us on Facebook or online at adairsvillebaptistchurch.org. And now, here's Pastor Eric. Timothy chapter 6. Today we conclude Paul's first letter, his first epistle to Timothy. We say first because he would write a second one that would make holy scriptures. But we're going to conclude it this morning and I hope by the end of our series that you're able to walk through this book with your family. You're able to walk through this book maybe in a neighborhood Bible study. We've preached it verse by verse and, and hopefully you'll be able to have a better understanding. I know that I sure will. This last chapter in 1 Timothy, I believe, has much to say to the American church and to the American Christian because we're tempted as Americans to think much of our brains and our budget. We're tempted to think much or to make much of our minds and our money. It's the American church. It's the American Christianity. And 1 Timothy chapter 6 comes to us And it has a a timely message from the Lord for American Christians. Now, if you were here last week, in chapter 5, we said that chapters 5 and 6 are all about church relationships. Church relationships, he begins with just generally with everybody in the family of God. Treat them as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. He moves and talks about our church relationship with widows, those who are truly needy among us. And he also moves and talks about uh, elders, how we relate to spiritual leaders. Last, he begins chapter 6 talking about masters or vocational leaders. And so he's he's talking about how we do life, how we build relationships with, with those in and around the family of God. Well, today we're going to see three more relationships. You might say our relationship with false doctrine, our relationship with money, and our relationship with our own Christian walk. Or I might say it a different way. In this section, Paul warns Timothy, he cautions Timothy, warns him about two dangers, and he reminds him of one duty. We see, number one, the danger of debates and craving an argument. We see, number two, the danger of greed and craving money. And then we see, number three, the duty of the Christian. So we're going to walk through these three uh, sections in the text and let the Lord speak to us. Let's look at the first one. Point number one, if you're taking notes or just to help us think through this, it's going to deal with our church relationship. What's our relationship with false doctrine? Number one, our relationship with false doctrine, our relationship to the false teachers. Or to say it a different way, here's the first danger. It's the danger of debates, the danger of craving an audience and an argument. And there were some sophists at this time that were paid kind of to speak and to generate audiences and hours of listening, right? I guess that was their TV or their cell phone of the day. And these guys would come in and it was a danger. They craved that audience. They loved to have an argument, but they were teaching false doctrine. And so he says, here's how we are to relate as the church to those that are teaching false things. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 where we left off verses 3 through 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound or healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit 
and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. An unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. First, he's going to talk about our relationship with false doctrine, with false teaching, and the danger of debates, craving the audience, and the argument. First, we see in these verses that we're to avoid those people that are teaching or that were teaching contrary doctrines. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, it's contrary. He says, watch out for those people. Uh, avoid those people. In verses 3, 4, and 5, you're actually going to see that there are improper teachings with improper motives resulting in improper results, right? Improper products. Improper teachings, improper motives, and improper results. Let's kind of walk through these. First, I want you to see the improper teaching. He says it's a different doctrine. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine. And then he tells us what that different doctrine looks like. He gives us two things. Look at what he says. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, number one, it does not agree with the sound or healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. So obviously by this time, they had in some ways the circulation of the words of Jesus. Red letter words, the teachings of Christ. He says that different doctrine does not align with the teaching of Jesus, with the sound and healthy words of Christ. Number two, it also does not produce godliness. It does not display godliness, right? Teaching that, that, that does not accord with godliness. Avoid these people, right? He says, this is what that improper teaching looks like, right? It doesn't, doesn't produce godly things. It doesn't line up with the words of our Lord. It doesn't line up with the words of Scripture. It goes on to describe the person and really the person's motives. Look at verse 4. He, I think the person's described in four ways. He says he's puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. It's not right, right? An unhealthy way of debating. For quarrels about words. So look at those four things, the way this person is described. Number one, he's conceited. The Word says he's, he's puffed up with conceit. Number two, he has misunderstanding. Not only is he puffed up with conceit, it says he understands nothing. He has a misunderstanding maybe of the things of God or the things of Scripture. Number one, conceited. Number two, misunderstanding. Number three, craves disputes. Just loves to dispute things and to argue things and to quarrel about things. An unhealthy craving for controversy, for, for religious debates that aren't healthy, that aren't edifying, that, that, that don't produce what we want to see. He craves disputes. And then number four, at, at the very last of verse five, he actually says that that person seeks personal gain. These people imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Now maybe that's gain money, monetary, right? Some false teachers today on TV and others, sometimes it's about the money, but sometimes it's just the gain of power. They just want to gain an audience, an ear, to gain popularity, likes, clicks, right? Because, right, right I can get something out of that, so maybe they're gaining just something for their ego, or maybe it's cash, right? He says, avoid these things. It's different doctrine. 
It does not agree with the words of the Lord Jesus. It does not accord with godliness and, and build people up. This person is conceited. They don't understand, although they think they do. They crave disputes that aren't healthy. They seek personal gain. And so he says, Timothy and church, be careful with this person. I'm not saying don't you know, minister to them or avoid them altogether or try to help them, but walk carefully, right, because there are false teachers. He says that this person's discussion is going to lead to four things. Look at what he says next. Verse 4. Which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. And then verse 5. And constant friction among people. Right? Again, it's, it's more dissension. It's more strife. So the person's discussion leads to four things. If we just want to alliterate with S's, maybe we say this. It leads to spite. That's envy. It leads to strife, that's dissension and constant friction. It leads to slander, right? He says that, bad-mouthing this person or that person. And then just evil suspicions, suspicions about that person, suspicions that aren't, that aren't right, that are, that are ungodly. He said, that's what all of this produces. It doesn't line up with Jesus. It doesn't line up with godliness. They're after the wrong things. They're puffed up. They think they understand, but they, they don't. They're craving dispute and some kind of gain. And all of it's going to do in your Sunday school class and in your church and among you is it's going to lead to spite. You begin to envy one another. You begin to have strife. Right? You begin to slander each other and to talk bad about somebody and you are always suspicious of the other person and what they're teaching and what they're up to, right? So he gives warning. Don't you know the early church fathers, they had to fight to preserve truth. They had to fight to preserve good doctrine. You see it all in the Scripture, but we even hear about those that, that followed in the centuries to come. Tertullian. Tertullian was living as a Christian in the 200s. Can you imagine? The 200s. And we have his words. I read some of them this week. This is what Tertullian in the 200s warned of. He warned of hypothetical questions, newfangled statements or discussions. He said, be wary of those things. Those hypothetical questions, those newfangled statements or discussions. He said, a controversy over the Scriptures can clearly produce no other effect than to upset either the stomach or the brain. Chrysostom, he was a believer in the 300s. He preached a sermon on 1 Timothy. Chrysostom said these words, What inflammation is to the body, pride is to the soul. It is possible to be knowing and yet to know nothing. Look at verse 4. Hear Chrysostom's words. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. Tertullian says that's that inflammation to the body. It's, pr it's pride to the soul. It inflames us. He's puffed up with conceit. He says it's possible to, to be knowing and yet to not understand, right? To know nothing. Religious debates. They have to be carefully monitored. They have to be so careful with the religious debates that we get into, that we enter, that we allow in our church? Do we have to make sure that they align and that they're producing the right things, that they have the right motives, that it's the right teaching and person? He says, Timothy, watch those words. Make sure they're healthy. As he ends verse 5, he says, these are the people that are constantly friction. He says, these people are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. How do you like that? Depraved and deprived. I don't want to be called a depraved and deprived. Depraved in the mind, in their soul, and deprived of the truth. Deprived of the truth. But what did we say was the key text of 1 Timothy? Do you remember? 
1 Timothy 3.15, that the church is the, you say it. Good job. Pillar of truth. Somebody said over here, right? The pillar of truth. Right? This is what 3.15 says. If I delay, Timothy, you may know, I'm writing this so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. But he says they're depraved and deprived of truth. So he begins to give us this illustration almost, that, that false teachings are like termites to the pillar. Right? What happens when termites get in that pillar? It crumbles, doesn't it? And he says, if you let this type of person around, this is what they look like, this is what they do, this is what it produces, it's a termite to the pillar of truth. They're depraved in their mind. They're, they're deprived of the truth. And that termite will rot away the pillar of truth. And this is what we have happening in churches. Right? Termites get in and all of a sudden it's really weak. Right? And you go look at the doctrine. Right? It's, it doesn't stand. It doesn't hold up. Be careful of those termites, if you will. So in these verses, he says, watch it, watch it. Just a danger of those debates, those, those dangerous cravings of an audience and an argument and the, how do we relate to false teachers. Secondly, we move to the next relationship. Next, he shows us this relationship. And they, they relate because he ends on this note of, and thereafter, this kind of gain. And then it gets him to talk about money. So he shows us our relationship with money and with contentment. Because this is the principle. Our relationship with money and contentment. We'll look at verses 6 to 10, also verses 17 to 19, because he circles back to it, just like we do, right? We come back to topics. This is the danger. It's the danger of greed. It's the danger of not craving an audience and an argument, but of, of craving money, of craving those goods. So let's look at how he says, verse 6. Right? These people are depraved and deprived. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain, some, something out of, out of it for them, you know, to get. Verse 6, Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Note that. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and literally covering, with these we'll be content. Clothing, roof. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a, not the root, it is a root, of all kinds, all kinds, different kinds, of evil. It's not the root of all evil, it's a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, he says, that some have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many pains. Jump down to verse 17. This is where he comes back to it. He says to Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, probably the American Christian, charge them not to be haughty, prideful, puffed up, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, right? ask those of the Great Depression, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. He says, here's our relationship as a church, as a people of God, with, with money and with contentment, the danger of craving cash, craving goods. What's the love of money called? Greed. The love of money is greed. Now, we know this, as, as verse 10 has been abused, that money is amoral. Do you know that word amoral? It means neither good nor bad. Something is amoral. 
money is uh, moral. It's neither good nor bad. It's all in how we use it. We do know that greed is immoral. Greed is bad. But what's the opposite of greed? It's contentment. In some ways, it could be generosity. It's this principle of Christian contentment that he's preaching. And that's been preached for centuries, right? All of those early church fathers, we preach it to this day. Be content in what you have. Be content in Christ. Augustine, another early church father in the 300s and 400s, actually said something that I enjoyed reading and that I agree with greatly. He warned that even a poor person could struggle with a love of money, a desire to be rich, or what he called the disease of riches. And I like that because the disease of riches is not just seen in America. I've seen people in Guatemala or in Nicaragua or even we could see even in Zambia that struggle from a love of money. Even a poor person can have greed in their heart, right? They may not have it. They just may have the love of money and the desire for it. And so he begins in this section to say, look at all the things that that greedy heart, that that desire and craving for money can bring. Look at verse 9. Those who desire to be rich, that have this unhealthy craving, he says they fall into temptation. There's all sorts of new temptations that come with that love of money. The temptation to steal, the temptation to hoard if you have it. Once you get money, there's a whole new temptation that comes. Will I lose it? The worry about what's checking it constantly. Right? Is it growing? Is it decl- right? it's, all sorts of new sins come in when you have it or when you don't have it. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, he says. Next, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It can lead to all sorts of sins. He says it's through this craving, verse 10, that some have wandered away from the faith, right? They've pierced themselves through with many pangs. He warns. But he tells us at the beginning what we're to add. If you want to count some things and to do some some addition, look at verse 6. He says there's great gain in godliness with contentment. He says, add these two things. Add godliness and contentment. And that equals what? True gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say add godliness with poverty equals great gain. Right? Sometimes we think that. If, well, if I'm just godly and I just get as poor and take that vow of poverty and give it all away, then that's going to be great gain. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say the opposite of poverty. He doesn't say prosperity. Now, godliness with prosperity is great gain, as all the TV preachers would have us believe, right? False prosperity gospel. He doesn't say prosperity. He doesn't say poverty. He says it's godliness plus contentment. Well, whatever the situation I find myself in, to be content, to be godly equals good gain, great gain true gain. He would tell us, right, as the church, find satisfaction in God, not goods. We saw that in verses 17 through 19 where he comes back to it and he says, those that are rich, right, tell them not to set their hope on riches on the stock market because it'll change, but set it on God. He gives us everything anyway. He says, if you want to be rich, be rich in good deeds. Be rich in good works, verse 16. Be generous. Be be ready to share. If you want to store something up, right, verse 19, store it up in, in heaven. Two truths about goods. You know these two things to be true. Number one, goods don't fulfill. Number two, goods don't last. Goods don't fulfill, they never will. Money will never fulfill. The things that we can buy with money will never fulfill. And number two, they don't last. Everything wears out, and I hate it, don't you? 
Stuff just doesn't last. Goods don't last. And they don't fulfill, right? And he says this in verse 17 through 19. You better set your hope on God because the goods are not the way to, to live this life. Chrysostom, again, the early church father, he called wealth this. He, he, he painted this picture with his words of wealth. And he said, wealth, wealth is a thankless runaway slave that you can't keep. You try to chain him up. You try to keep him here. You try to keep your wealth. And if you try to keep your wealth, it's like a thankless runaway slave. He will run and you will never be able to chain him and you'll never get him back. He's a servant. You make money that servant. The servant's thankless. The servant's never going to be with you. you. You can't control that servant. Here today, gone tomorrow. Right? Early on, he says, that's wealth. Right? So just be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 6, here's our relationship. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world. Look at that verse. And we can take nothing out of the world. How many of you know that life and death have no luggage? No check bags, no carry-ons, no personal items, right? You don't get to do any of that when you come in. You don't get to do any of that when you leave. So he says, so let that affect how you live and how you relate to contentment and money. He says, if you want to focus on something, verse 8, focus on these two things. He says, if we have, number one, food, and number two, ESV says clothing, New American Standard says covering. I like that. If you have food and if you have clothing, something to cover your body and a roof to cover your head, whether that's a tent, a tarp, some kind, right? If you have food and clothing and some kind of house, be content, you're blessed, right? Be content with that. Right? Say, that's, this is all that I Need. I brought nothing into the world. I'm not going to take any of it out. So money's not bad now. Don't, we're not saying that, right? It's amoral. It's the love of money. It's greed that is wrong, right? You could be rich, and God had many rich people in Scripture and blessed Solomon and Joseph of Arimathea and, and others. Not a sin to have wealth, right? Just a sin to put your love in the, in the wealth. He says, use the wealth. Man, if God's blessed you, look at what he says. Be generous. Verse 18, be ready to share. I'm so thankful for that. So today, the Scripture comes and tells us, turn American Christians, American church, from from coveting to contentment. Turn from greed to generosity. So I think even these first two points are applicable to us all, each of us, and really to the American church, right? Why? Because, number one, America has pride in her thoughts and in her words, and we have pride in our wealth. America, pride in the thoughts that we have and think and the things that we say, and pride in our thoughts and words as America, and pride in our wealth. And God's Word comes in these two points and says, just want to caution you about that. Your words and your great thinking and statements that you think you can make, and also your wealth and how you put your hope in riches. So do you see the first two dangers? Number one, the danger of debates and craving an audience. The danger of having a puffed up mind. Or number two, the danger of greed, craving money, a puffed up bank account or wallet. Two dangers. The last is a duty. He moves from the relationship with false doctrine and relationship from money, and now he says, I just want you to have the work, work on the relationship with your own Christian walk your own Christian duty. So our relationship, point number three, with the Christian walk, and he tells us this, the duty of the Christian. The duty of the Christian life. And you see it in verses 11 through 21. So he begins to speak directly to Timothy. Let's read it together. Verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee 
these things. Be fleeing. It's continual aspect in the Greek language. Be constantly fleeing these things. Be constantly pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who made His testimony, His confession before Pontius Pilate. He made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. And let the church say, Amen. 17 through 19, you read it. Verse 20, O Timothy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved, of course, right? Swerved from the faith. Don't swerve. He ends with this simple blessing. Grace be with you. Amen, amen. Our last, our relationship with the Christian walk our own duty as Christian men and women. And he starts verse 11 with this unique New Testament phrase, as for you, O man of God. O man of God. Man of God. That was said in the Old Testament of Elijah, of Elisha, of Moses, and of David in the New Testament, only spoken of Timothy. Paul reaches back to all those greats of the Old Testament that were called man of God, and he says, and you, Timothy, oh, that's emotion, when you see it in the, in the text. Oh, man of God. Oh, man of God. Could that be said of you? I was on my way to church this morning with the son, just kind of thinking in the, the truck. You don't know how I think while we're silent or driving or whatever. We talk some, but right. But I was thinking, you know, we're headed to men's breakfast, and I thought about 1 Timothy, and I thought, this is a letter that Paul is saying to Timothy, man, you have a job to do. And then he gives him the job. Man, you have a job to do. And I thought, men, you have a job to do. Men, you still have a job to do. Amen. As fathers, right? As husbands, as just men and leaders in the church, could it be said of you that you could be the man of God? Men, you have a job to do for the cause of Christ. Do it. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. The whole letter. Man of God, do these things. Pastor the church at Ephesus, and here's how you're to do it, and how to do pastoral care, how to set things up, right? Men of God, you still have the cause of Christ. He talks about our Christian duty in this section, and I love it. Uh, it involves four things. The first two go together. We'll give them all S. Uh, John MacArthur would do that. He would preach a great sermon called Four Marks of the Man of God. And he would, he would base it on these four points. Uh, it's a, it was just a powerful message to pastors and others. Man of God, do these things. But this is our Christian duty. Number one, flee from. And number two, follow after. Flee from and follow after. This is our Christian duty as men of God, as women of God. Number one, your Christian duty involves these two things. Flee from and follow after. You may say, if you wanted to do S's, shun and seek. He tells us what we are to shun and what we are to seek. Look at verse 11. But as for you, man of God, be fleeing from these things. We are known by what we flee from or what we shun. He says, shun 
the love of money. Shove, shun greed. Shun the dangers of false teaching. He, right? He's told us all along, like, these are some of the things that we are to flee from. And there are also things that we follow after, that we pursue, that we seek. Right? And it, again, it's continual aspect. Don't ever stop running. How far is a safe distance to run from sexual immorality? There is no safe distance. We run every day, right? We, there you can, can I stop running now? No. The answer is no, right? I guess when I'm dead, I'll stop running and you will too, right? We never stop running, right? We always flee, always be fleeing these things, right? Flee from sin, but wait, what do we have to do? We also know we have to do something else. We have to seek or follow after or pursue. And then he gives us these five virtues. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, it could be any five, but why these five? He says, here are the five things you are to pursue. Look at the verse, righteousness. means goodness. Moral things, the right things of God, righteousness, things that are good, holy, and pure. Number two, godliness. Pursue that. Seek that over gain and over... Number three, faith. Pursue faith. Trust and faithfulness. Pursue next, he says, love. Love. Oh, he says... Is that six? It's six, isn't it? How did I get five? Um, Not very good counting, am I? just came to me. (laughs) Pursue love. Seek that, right? Next he says steadfastness, perseverance. Greek word hupomene, to abide under. Remember I lift the chair, I'm abiding, right? Endure, just remain steadfast. Abide under the pressures of this world. Seek that. Seek, Seek to finish strong. And then look at the last word, gentleness. Gentleness. Be gentle and meek. And I would say as a Christian, let those words describe you in these days. Could, could someone say of you, you're gentle, you're, you're pursuing righteousness, you're steadfast, you have faith and love, but you're also meek? There is a word that's key in this text, and I think really key in this book, and it's this word today in our passage. Maybe you would notice if you just constantly read it and took it in. It's this, it's godliness. Godliness is key. It appears nine times in this book. That's the most in any other New Testament book. Would you have believed it? I wouldn't. First Timothy is quite short. You'd think godliness would be a key word. It occurs in the New Testament most in Timothy and most in the book. It's right here in chapter 6. Four times he's mentioned godliness. Godliness. In what accords with godliness? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Pursue this. Pursue godliness. 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 That's so important. Right? A godly man or woman is known from what they flee from and what they follow after. Our Christian duty also involves these two things. What does he say next? He says, well, number three, be fighting. Be fighting. We're known by what we, to what we fight for. Look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Fight. Be fighting. It's also this aspect of continue to fight the good fight. And then he says of the faith. We would say number four, be faithful. We're known by what we're faithful to. Be faithful toward these things. Fight the good fight of the faith. That word fight, do you like the athletic words? This is an athletic word here. Right? Agonize and, and contend. And it's, it's like from the athletic games, the Greek games and the Corinthian games. And, right? Do that. That's, it's fight the good fight of the faith. Train to be godly as we talked about previously. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life instead of the crown. You can take hold of that eternal life. That is your crown. He says to Timothy, which you were called. About which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I don't know if he's saying remember your baptism. You used to have to give a confession, a public confession of your faith at your baptism. Christ Jesus is Lord. This is my... He's like, remember that. I encourage you, remember your baptism. Remember when you made a public confession of your faith, the good confession before an audience of men. He said, go back to that. Remember that. Where were you? He says, be fighting for that. Be faithful to that. 
he ends this section really in the first part by saying, remember Christ. Remember the example of Jesus, His confession and His coming. He says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who made His testimony before Pontius Pilate. He made the good confession to keep the commandment, unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, remember Christ's confession. Remember Christ's coming. And Timothy, remember your confession. And remain faithful to these things. Timothy made it. Christ made it. Have you made the good confession? Has there been a time when you've made that, that good confession before men? What was the good confession? What was the good confession that Christ made before Pilate? Let me read to you John 18, 33 through 40. So Pilate entered the headquarters again and he called Jesus to him. He said, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say that to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, this is good confession. My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Here's his good confession. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Of course, Pilate answers what is truth and he goes on to crucify the king of the Jews. Make the good confession that Christ is king of kings, that he is Lord of lords. The last part of this first little section, of, or the ending little section of, of verses 15 through 16 is actually the last of three benedictions in the book. Three types of blessings or poetry type statements. Look at it. Verse 15, Which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. He says, To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. The first benediction is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. To the King of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Ends that first little section. The second one is more of the confession, right? In that's 1 Timothy 3, 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And that ends that one. And then now we have the last of the three, who is the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You know what? You have to be able to say that blessing. You have to be able to say, God, you're the only sovereign. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You're king and I'm not. Right? You don't exist for me. I exist for you. Can you say that? That, Lord, you're the sovereign. You are the King of kings. You are the, the Lord of lords. He ends, amen. He circles back to the money that we saw in verses 17 through 19. And then those last couple of words that in that, that closing, oh, Timothy, oh, Timothy, it's emotion. Oh, Timothy, guard the trust. Guard the deposit. It's been, it's been given to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what people falsely call knowledge, their knowledge, right? He says, some have swerved from the faith. Oh, goodness. Don't. Remain 
true. And he just ends the letter with, with grace. He would write another. Timothy, be that man of God. So we close the book. What a blessing to be able to preach through it, to, to have this sacred trust and to handle it for us to walk through and to see the dangers and the duty, right? Our relationship in all these areas. In closing, I would just maybe say this. Our hearts and minds can be filled with something. We're always filled with something. You can be filled with false teaching, with greed, or you can be filled with God. And that's it. What will you choose? What will you choose to be filled with? He says, man of God, woman of God, you know what you need to be filled with, what you need to be pursuing. You need to choose. Today, we all can choose the King. Eternal, immortal, invisible. To choose the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yesterday, did you catch a little bit of it? The coronation of King Charles. They spent millions of millions of millions and millions of dollars on the coronation ceremony of Charles. He was crowned, but he can never be, never be the king described here. Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only true God. Honor and glory forever. He can never be the only sovereign, dwelling in unapproachable light. He can never be the one who is unseen, worthy of eternal dominion. So the question always is, do you know the King of Kings today? Jesus, do you know Him? Will you come to Him? If you know Him, will you submit to Him? Tomorrow, instead of rising and saying, King, here's what you can do for me today. Do this, do this, do this, do that. How about just say, hey, King, what can I do for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much Lord, for being able to preach through a book of the Bible. Thank you for a church that would be faithful to that. And Lord, thank you for what you've taught us in great truth and in great context. And Lord, help us to guard our hearts. Lord, to, to walk carefully when it comes to truth. Lord, to walk carefully when it comes to money. Lord, we think so much, even we don't even realize how much we think of our brains and budgets, how much we try to rely on that. But Lord, you're king. Lord, we know you've called us to different things. Help us to be meek and gentle, to be loving and faithful. Help us to be generous. Lord, help us to be running. Some of us, we know what we need to flee this week. Lord, help us to seek other things instead. Lord, help us to fight and never stop. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help me to be faithful to the very end. Lord, you are worthy of worship. And Lord, the best way for us to do that is to submit. And Lord, to ask you what you would have us to do. And Lord, to surrender to your rule and reign and your call on our life. So Lord, call us out of darkness into marvelous light today. In Jesus' name, for His glory. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Making Christ Known. We invite you to join us again next time for another sermon from Adairsville Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on Facebook or online at adairsvillebaptistchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you again soon.